everybody, this is Winston Wilson with the Creativity Cocktail and the Productivity Cocktail. I am so pleased today to have a very good friend of mine join us for a conversation that I know you'll enjoy. My great friend here is Jay Weiser. He is part of Jay Weiser Consultant. He has got an amazing framework that we're going to talk about a little bit here. So Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining. I really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Really happy to be here. Yes. So Jay and I know each other from an organization that we're both part of called Kettering. Uh, it's an executive network for those who don't know of it. So it's really around a shared experience and paying it forward as far as helping others who are going through transition or that they need support in whatever their career career lives are. So Jay, I've known you, I don't know how many years now. So it's been great to be part of that. Say five or six years at least. We've known each other for a while. Yeah, it, it it has been. Time goes by fast. I was making a remark to a friend the other day, like, he took that picture. I was sharing with him a picture. And he was like, wait a minute, Winston, that picture we took in like 2017. I was like, wow, we, we look so good still. <laughs> that, was, that was my comment. So, Jay, I'm going to start off a question that to get the, the audience to really know you quickly. And so hopefully you will think about this a little bit. And so what is one thing that you use personally that helps you every day when you're about to do your work or you're about to get up, you're about to be effective and get stuff going? What is a, what is a tool or process that you use every day that helps you? So th this is going to sound a little out of left field. It's, I'm probably not the best one with tools, but what's interesting, what I think makes me most productive every day is my cochlear implants, of which I have two. <clears throat> oh, your, your cochlear implant, is that what you, your, your, your cochlear implants? Yes. Yeah. So, so what that is with, without, without the implants, <clears throat> without the external processors, I don't hear anything it's like hitting mute oh wow and essentially what the cochlear implant does is it takes sound and converts it to an electrical signal there's an implant under the skin it goes to my inner ear <clears throat> and there's an electrode in that lays across the hearing nerve and it sends takes a sound converts it to electrical signals so my brain figures it out it is probably one of the most amazing medical devices ever. Wow. How long have you had that? I've, you know, it's interesting you say that I just celebrated uh, my 11th anniversary on my left side, and it'll be uh, 10 and a half years on the right side. So before that, I was wearing hearing aids and, um, I did not hear a whole lot. So if we were having a conversation, I would probably get about 30, 35% of the words and hope that I was guessing right on the rest of them. <laughs> and with these, I now have probably 85 to 95% understanding depending on you know what's going on around me. Wow, that is awesome. You know, a lot of times I hear many of us talk about the times we live in and they disparage the times we live in like oh yeah this is wrong or that's wrong or this is wrong but technology is not one of those things <laughs> like, no. te technology is amazing if you had to ask me if i wanted to live here versus live 
200 years ago where everyone, you know, rode around on a horse or something, I'd prefer now. <laughs> then, oh, no, I, I, absolutely. You know, I re something you'll find funny is I know you're a family person and the hearing loss goes back to my family. And I remember talking with my grandmother. So she was born in 1909. She died in 1996. <clears throat> and thinking to myself, she went from, you know, the birth of cars, starting of planes, all the way, you know, a man on the moon in the first computers. And I said to myself, I will never experience that leap in technology. But when I think about what's happened in my life from, you know, man on the moon in all the space flights to starting when they first invented cochlear implants, they were, you wore something like this, double the thickness on your belt with wires connected to your head. They were only invented in 1990. And now this is the whole thing. Isn't that something? Wow. That's, so, that tells you so much about technology. It, it really does. Uh, I am so, everyone who's listening, we are thankful too that Jay has those cochlear implants because that way we're able to talk to you today. So that is, that, that, that is, that is, every time I hear about a technological marvel, such as what you are, what you have, it just tells me that we have a lot to do. We have a lot to go, a lot to, to where we need to be as a, but we do a lot of things right. And technology is one of them. So, so again, thank you for sharing that, Jay. I really appreciate you sharing that with, with the audience. So I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you a little bit about who you are and what you do and a little bit about your background. So if you had to give us like a kind of a, maybe a minute or two about your background share with the audience here about that so i guess the first thing you know probably from going back to business school even before is this whole idea about solving problems helping organizations figure out how they can be better how they can reach their potential so it's not just about an efficiency thing it's about are they doing the right thing are they accomplishing what they set out to in an environment that's healthy for people? People can reach their full potential. Customers are satisfied. And you know the story is if you do all that stuff right, the owners get, the, get returns, but they're shared because everybody is benefiting versus you know starting with the owners first. I mean, I've been, you know, stakeholder capitalism is new but that's been my mindset probably for the last 20, 25 years in terms of how I approach my work with um, organizations. The other thing, uh, I guess I like diagnosing. I like digging into a problem. I like exploring and trying to figure out what the root cause is. So it's not just a matter of you know addressing symptoms. I really believe in sustainable solutions. So if I'm working with a client, I just don't want to fix what's happening today. I want to do it in a way that you don't have the same problem tomorrow or the year after that. And my work over really probably the last 20 years, like, you know, kind of two streams that have merged together. One is around strategy and strategy execution that 
you can't have two separate discussions. They need to be an integrated discussion because strategy without execution is like a binder on the shelf. And execution without strategy has, you know, doesn't have any direction or purpose. Right. And it's the second part is the recognition that it really comes back to the organization. It comes back to people. There's people who, you know, what make up your organization. Technology can help to a degree. Uh, but I was reading an article and I think it was entitled talking about power skills and talking about things that AI and automation can't do that require human judgment, human thinking, understanding of people and recognizing that, you know, it's a very organic process. It's not like a machine. <clears throat> and that really requires the human brain. And the other, the other part, which has become a lot more relevant over the last couple of years, but even before that, is what's going on in the environment around you. What context are you operating in? Whether that's inside your organization in terms of, you know, issues like culture or diversity or how communications are to what's going on in your ecosystem with your partners, your suppliers, your competitors, your industry, and then going out to a macro level for things. I mean, you think about COVID, you think about what's going on with Ukraine and, you know, other geopolitical hotspots that, you know, um, like supply chain. I mean, whoever thought that a barge getting stuck in the Suez Canal would have ripple effects around the world and how interconnected everything is. I, I remember that. You know, one of the things you said that struck me, Jay, is this thought process about solving problems. And I'm people, many people who are listening to this, there is this, this, this intense focus on solving problems but I usually tell people, like, do we solve a problem and break three other things at the same time? Or are we really finding the root of whatever it is? And I think there's this tendency, and I, I, I probably say this too flippantly sometimes, is that are you doing this because you're trying to solve a problem or you're trying to get something off of your desk or out of your email box? Those are two separate things. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Those are two separate things. And then and a lot of times it may mean that whatever you're trying to solve is bigger, or it may not even be you that needs to solve it. You need to really have a deeper understanding about what it is you're trying to solve. And I think it's not even just businesses and organization. I think that's we, we're trying to solve things expeditiously without understanding that, well, am I solving things for the future or am I solving things that helps me right now feel good? It's kind of this, this, the whole process of, of this life. People do stuff all the time because it makes them feel good. <laughs> and I do, even though they say, well, I'll get into debt because I feel good now. And then later on, that has a repercussion for it. Or I'll do some vice now. And next thing you know, I have repercussions for it. You know, the, the thing is, you know, I jotted down three points, uh, you know, that, that triggered some thinking with me. But the first one, I'd start off with defining the problem. Yeah, I think it was Einstein who said they they asked him and said if you know if you had an hour to solve a problem, what would you do? And his response was, I'd spend fifty-five minutes defining the problem to make sure I was solving the right one. And I'd spend five minutes solving it because if you've defined the problem properly and got into really what the core issue is, 
that whole process helps you solve it. So a lot of times people are solving the wrong problem. You know, there's, they're solving a pain, they're solving something superficial. And the second thing, you know, you talked about people want to do what makes them feel good. People feel good very often when they're busy, but busy doesn't necessarily mean they're making progress. That's right. And yeah, you know, I mean, that that's a corporate thing too, you know, People want to see you at, you know, used to me, they wanted to see you at your desk. They wanted you to look busy, but, you know, activity, don't confuse activity with progress. You know, what's the outcome you're trying to achieve? And the third thing that you talked about was, you know, kind of unintended consequences. And it's recognizing, you know, I'm, I'm a systems thinker. How do all the pieces fit together? You know, if you tweak this a little bit, you know, three other things move. So it's looking at from a more holistic perspective and understanding what you do. And it's the same thing when there is a disruption. You know, COVID started off as an upper respiratory illness, but it led to employment consequences, airline consequences, financial consequences, hybrid workplace, supply chain issues, you know, whoever thought, you know, something that started, um, you know, in a market, we think in China, that has all of a sudden, you know, changed the workplace, changed the world, changed how we approach things. Yeah. You know, I, you, you were, when you were talking, one of these quotes, and I wish I could remember who said this, but the quote was, activity is the anesthesia that uh, deadens the, the emptiness of life. <laughs> and, so, and I wish I could remember. I remember the quote so clearly. I just don't remember who said it. And, and, and a lot of times we have to think about, and we have to help people sometimes do that. Uh, I, there's, there's, this, there's this sense, and I obviously love to be personally productive. A lot of times people will come to me and say, well, you know, if I did this one thing, does it solve my life? Does it just, you know, does I do, is there a magical elixir or a magical app or something that would just, if I hit a couple of buttons, everything in my life would go away. And, and we all know that that is not true nor possible. And a lot of times you have to stop. You have to say, just like you just mentioned about the 55 minutes and the five minutes, like, are you doing the same thing for your life's aspirations and what you're trying to achieve in your life? Are you spending that amount of time planning or do you get December 30th and say, well, I got a bunch of resolutions and I'm going to do that. You know, December 30th is not a planning. <laughs> that is not planning for the future. It's not a resolution. is not a plan. A resolution is a, you know, it's, it's a, in some cases a dream. And, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit framework that you've shared with my and and it is unbelievably powerful everyone that's there uh, that's out there and really thinking about how you contextualize that to people who are just listening wherever they are and it's called the uh, five leadership superpowers and that is a powerful framework that I know will continue to gain traction over time because it it resonates with so many people because every single person who's listening to us talk Every single one of you have a moment in your life where you are a leader. So whether you're leading as a CEO or you're leading your household, you have an opportunity to be a leader. 
I wanted you to chat a little bit about that framework and how what people can kind of take away from that. Sure. So the framework with the five superpowers, first of all, how, how it came about, and that was leaders, uh, individuals seem perpetually surprised and unprepared for disruptions and uncertainty. And this was meant to be a framework, a set of capabilities to help people think through what's happening around them, things they need to realize they need to do differently, look at things differently. So they can dampen the downside of disruptions, they can recover faster, and they can pounce on opportunities. <clears throat> you know, I, I joke, I can I can tell the story almost two ways that I think are very compelling. One is something that everybody's probably familiar with in your audience. And uh, that was the pilot, uh, I'm not remembering his first name, Sullenberger, the one yes, who yeah. landed his plane on the Hudson. Right. And during his three and a half minute flight, he exercised all five superpowers. So let me explain and then I'll talk about the superpowers and then I'll relate it to a personal experience. <clears throat> so Sullenberger, the flight took off out of LaGuardia. As the flight was climbing, all of a sudden they ran into a flock of birds <clears throat> and there were fires flaring up from each of the engines. And in a matter of seconds, both engines were dead and they were trying to restart them and that wasn't getting anywhere. So he had to think about two things. One, pre in the present, you know, can I start these engines and what do I do? In the future about, you know, the most important thing is how do I get 150 people safely back on the planet <laughs> and survive? So he had to balance both. The second thing is, despite all of his training, you know, the first thing pilots do is they pull out the manual, you know, what do we check? What do we do? Well, this was an event that wasn't in the manual. So he had to realize that his expertise and experience in past training wasn't going to help. He had to think back. He had to learn about, you know, what other options? And it dawned on him that he flew a glider back in back in early in his career and just a whole mentality of a glider. So he's thinking to himself, if I can fly this like a glider, then that's going to help us get to some place. Right. The, the third thing is he had to balance risk and preparedness. So he had to figure out well, where is this, you know, the best way to get this safe. He ended up choosing the Hudson because as he thought about it, there were boats on both sides. It was easily accessible to emergency uh, boats, vehicles, ferries, who could co converge on the plane, which was better than trying to get to another airport. So that was part of his risk calculation. And as he thought about coming in, how to land and, and preparing was important. Once they had that plan, and again, this isn't a matter of minutes. Right. That's, he that's had to execute. He, yeah. he had to execute. So he had a strategy about how he could land flat on the water, <clears throat> and he then had to execute that. And the last piece 
he and the co-pilot had never flown together before. So here they are thrown into a potentially catastrophic situation and they had to collaborate and they had to align their thinking around achieving the same outcome because they would ultimately be accountable for those 150 lives that were on the plane. <clears throat> and they had to collaborate because if they weren't working together and helping each other, <clears throat> they never would have gotten on the ground. I mean, Sullenberger gets all the credit, but the co-pilot was just as important. So if you think about, you know, the five I spoke about was present and future. So that's being a present futurist and balancing both sides. Second is being an experienced learner. So recognizing that experience and expertise very often isn't enough, especially in a completely different environment. So you have to be open to learning diversity of views, asking questions, being open to being challenged. Third was about being a prepared risk taker because he knew the capabilities of the plane, what was built in, he thought about what was in the surroundings. Fourth is being a strategic executor. So you have a plan, you have a direction you're going in, and then you're able to execute. And you don't make decisions in the short term that could affect the long term, you know, adversely. And he had to think about both. And being an accountable collaborator is about focusing on outcomes, not activities, about realizing the only way that that team, that collaborative, uh, collaborative relationship is as successful is if their mission, their outcome. Individuals can't succeed unless the group succeeds and it has to be looked at that way. <clears throat> you know, I'll Please. I was going to say that is so powerful. You know, I, I, I know you were going to share a example personally. I wanted to ask, a, there are sure. lots of leaders who do this, right? There's lots of leaders who do this, sometimes unconsciously, sometimes deliberately. Why do you think, and I have a theory about this, and I won't say it until I hear your thoughts. Sure. But why do you think this is not, this kind of thought process is not, fully adopted by many leaders out there. So, so you're asking why I think that. Yeah, why not? Why is not 100% of every leadership in organizations doing the five leadership powers or some iteration of it? So, so I, I think <clears throat> there are a number of things. I mean, for, first of all, people, you know, if you go back 30 years, 25 years, it was a much more predictable environment. The way people thought about businesses, you know, I think was a little more um, mechanistic in terms of, you know, if I do this, this will happen, you know, based on history. <clears throat> and, you know, as Fidelity says, past, uh, past performance does not predict future performance. I think the other piece is, uh, you know, we talked about activities and busyness. Uh, very often there's a bias towards action without thinking. That was, what, that was where I was getting to. <laughs> I was going to say that. I wanted to see if you said that same thing. I think sometimes there's, a, there's some organizations are enamored with activity. I mean, I was having a conversation with a contact yesterday and, you know, 
she's saying we talk in our leadership team about different issues. And what we really need to do is a deeper dive and really discuss up the issues. And there are people on our leadership team who, who as soon as you introduce a problem, like, okay, what do we do? Instead of let's figure out what's going on first and then figure out what to do. I think there's an energy that people get from being busy, from being a firefighter. You know, that's exciting. That's right. Yeah. But most fi most firefighters will tell you, you know, a lot of the fires are preventable. And as exciting as it is to put out a fire, they'd rather not see as many as they do. <clears throat> so, so I think that comes into play. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the other part, people get so caught up in what's going on today that they not, they're not thinking further out. Their incentives very often are not looking further out. You know, if you're a public company, there, there's that pressure to, you know, meet your numbers. But that the thing quarterly is- Quarterly pressure, right? That quarterly number. That earnings would get out every single quarter, right? And, and that can create some, I wouldn't say short-sightedness, but that focus on, well, we got to make sure that the net income and the EBITDA and the earnings per share and the buybacks and all of these things, they all have to line up to what the street has so we can get more value on our stock versus two or three years down the road to be prepared for whatever might happen. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, that short-sightedness, uh, you know, leads to a lack of preparation. I mean, there was a lot of stuff written, um, you know, going into COVID, supply chain, all these things that people were doing so much to take cost out, so much to increase productivity that what they sacrificed was any kind of resiliency or preparedness, you know, having a bit of a buffer, a cushion, a shock absorber that would help address, you know, a disruption. I think the other thing, you know, and I go back to some of my business school and economics background, and, you know, my focus has always been on longer term value. And it doesn't mean you don't achieve results today. And it's not, you know, either today or tomorrow, you want to do both. And you want to build it in a sustainable manner. So people are able to you know, shareholders want long-term shareholder value. The fact that, you know, I made more money this quarter, but, you know, next year I'm not in the position to grow. Well, that doesn't help your stock price. Yeah, it, it does not. And I, and I know that the world is this because even all of us, we're now part of it, right? So if, if any one of us has a, a portfolio of any kind, we are now part of that whole cycle. Like, I need my stock to go up because hence that's money that I need to be part of. And to your comment, it is a really razor's edge. The slightest thing that throws that, that cycle off has an effect all the way upstream and downstream. And I think companies are starting to come around to this, starting to think about this more. But there are things that there's, I think sometimes that they don't know, that they just don't know. You don't know how a disruption of a massive weather event is going to have on your, on your organization. The, the example you made about the Suez Canal barge 
That was a really good one because that had a global implication for one thing happening. <laughs> that, that, that was a real thing. You know, the, the, the things that are going on with Russia and Ukraine, those things have long effects on every single person on the planet. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, I mean, we talk about, you know, things that are out of our control. And I remember you mentioned Kettering. Uh, I presented the Kettering about six, seven weeks before COVID hit. And I think it was the title of the presentation was how to become a valuable and relevant leader in the 2020s. Little did we know what was going to be happening in six weeks. But I think it was probably my second or third slide. And what it said is, you don't get to choose your circumstances. That's right. You do get to choose how you respond. And it's about recognizing what you do control, what you do have influence over, and what you have to adapt to. Yeah. And it's being able to tell the difference. And I often talk about, you know, you can be a captain or a captive. You know, I watch the show, The Deadliest Catch a lot. And, you know, they're out in the Bering Sea, up in a lot, you know, off the coast of Alaska, the probably roughest, toughest water in the world. And the boats are going, you know, crazy. And they're able to steer through that. There's a captain who knows, you know, they need to fish. They're looking for king crab. I have to make it through the storm. I can't just sit back and hope the boat floats. You know, right. I have to keep on moving. Versus, you know, I think very often there's almost this uh, victimology where people say, oh, my God, I can't do anything. It's out of my control. You know, they go down into the bottom of the boat and they're a captive to what's going on around them. <laughs> And that is it, a good story. Yes, <laughs> you know, I, I had I shared this many times. I had a professor years ago when I was going through graduate school. He said something to me that I always remember, and this was before it became as relevant as it is today. And he said, "Hey, Winston, there's really two things that world is going to need in the future." And this was almost twenty years ago. He's telling this to me. He's like, "They're going to need leadership." and data. Those are the two things. And there's been a ton of businesses built since then and now that are focused on those two things, right? Is Tesla great at making cars? Yes. Did it have a good leader? Many would say yes. Did it have a lot of good data? I would probably say yes. Quite. They have a lot of good data that allows them to understand how to build them, where to build them, how it's going to sell. What's the, they, they have lots of good data that allows their business to run. I could go down the list of businesses, Apple and Apple and Microsoft, and all of the, all of them have had this thought process like, hey, we need data in order for us to run. And at the same time, many of them realize that, hey, you know, we got to have good leaders too. And not just the CEO person, but sure. there's got to be good leaders all across the organization for us to be successful. And, and I think that that to me is pretty optimistic, quite frankly. I no, think that I mean, the organization yeah. like that. Mm. I think it's that depth of leadership across the organization. I did work with a uh, large supermarket chain prevalent throughout the South. And you know, I remember having a discussion with the leadership team as we were talking about sharing the strategy across the organization, help people understanding their role. And I said, would you rather have the 50 people in the you know, 
upper tier of the organization executing strategy or 150,000 plus associates across 1,100 stores in seven or eight states executing strategy and knowing what to do. And obviously the power is in the latter. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, the other thing that's interesting, uh, you know, data is critical in terms of understanding, but very often data looks backwards and data can be very helpful. But you also sometimes have to realize the limitations when you're in a completely new environment. So data that supported, let's just say, productivity in the office is great. But when people are working in a hybrid environment, some of that data might not be relevant. That's why you and, need the leadership in order to help break right. standing and how do we conceptualize how this and leadership sometimes has to make a decision with not 100% of the data, right? Yeah. Many times you guys say, well, I got enough. I got to make a decision for the organization. Well, and, and the thing too, um, it's okay to make a mistake. You know, too often I think organizations, you know, you make a mistake and people tag you and all of a sudden, you know, you're a pariah in the organization. I think ideally you have a culture that recognizes that failing is okay. In fact, somebody said the word fail, F-A-I-L, is the first attempt in learning, <laughs> is that you learn, you learn, you learn from the, you learn from these mistakes. Um, the company WD-40, we all have that blue and yellow can probably somewhere in our garage. Uh, their CEO, decided we're getting rid of the word mistakes. We're getting rid of failures. He said, in this organization, they're learning moments and people don't get punished for learning moments. Now, that is unless they repeat the same learning moment over and over and over. Yeah. But, you know, that we celebrate those things because we're learning and we're growing. So, you know, I think that's part of the mindset too. Very often leaders are afraid of making mistakes and get paralyzed in terms of making a decision and they think, oh, you know, I don't want to take the risk. I'm not going to make a decision, but there's risk in, in action as well. <clears throat> so making it so, you know, a leader can say, I don't know, I haven't seen this before, but we as a team can figure this out. I have faith in this organization and saying that is very powerful. Yeah. Uh that concept of leaders failing forward. And quite frankly, I'm reading a book by John Maxwell, one of my favorite authors that actually says that in the title, Failing Forward is the name of the book. Uh, and as you think about the mindset, I always talk about a book written by Carol DeWitt a number of years ago that is called Mindset. And inside that book, she talks about when there is something that goes awry or not as planned, there's two things that you can say, fixed, fixed mindset was a was me or is your fault <laughs> or what happened or like your your example there wow what did we learn from this thing and how do we avoid it in the future i was listening to someone recently and it, it was like oh, i think it was a like a shaman type of person or or an oracle person talking and he was sharing that when something goes wrong in our lives that is wisdom <laughs> and so by the time we get older, we should have a whole lot of wisdom. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> you, you know, I, I think part of that is, do you internalize it? Yes. You know, you, you have that wisdom, but did you learn something? That's right. So they, you don't have that circumstance again. Yes, that, that is right. Uh, this, this has been great. I hope for the, those of you who are out there that you have been able to hear some of the great things that, that uh, Jay was able to share with us today. Jay, I'm going to share with our audience here your website, but can you take a few moments and tell people what's the best way for them to connect and engage with you? Um, so so the, the first, uh, you know, you mentioned the website is J, uh, excuse me, www.jyweiser.com. You can reach me directly uh, through LinkedIn is one way is to connect with me on LinkedIn. <clears throat> the second way is to email me, j at jwiser.com. Uh, and then you go to the website too, if you notice in the top right-hand corner, it says book your free discovery call. So you can click on that and actually set up time with me. Uh, for a discovery call, we'll talk about your situation, some of the challenges you're facing, where you're hoping to go, and, you know, chat about, you know, how do you move forward? What would help? Uh, I work with organizations. I do training. I do speaking, uh, conduct individual and organizational assessments, and do leadership coaching all around. How do you become prepared and ready for the future? How do you... Um, address disruptions and uncertainty so you don't only survive but you can actually thrive in the face of that because if you're prepared and ready you're going to do a whole lot better than the companies that are not and i i appreciate this opportunity winston you know this this has been a really good conversation i've enjoyed it i've learned some things you know through the process i hope the audience has as well Yes, I, I, and I, I thank you for those of you who are listening. Uh, we have shared this on all of our platforms. So hopefully you've been able to get something out of it. I love chatting with Jay. There's always, like you said, Jay, there's always something that I learn. And it, it is fascinating because every single one of us, no matter where we are, we are going to face a challenge. So whether you are the leader or you have an opportunity to support and help a leader, Hopefully you're able to get some of this information and say, how do we make sure that our organization, regardless of how big your organization is, your organization could be you and your dog, or it can be 500 people, <laughs> whatever that is, how do we get prepared? Because the one thing that we do know for a fact is that something is going to happen. Something is going to impact our organization and our lives in some material way as time goes on. Jay, I hope you join us again. I hope you can be part of this again. Uh, for those of you who are listening out, uh, please connect with all of the various platforms we have, the Creativity Cocktail, the Productivity Cocktail. I was waiting for a different way to like introduce this. I was going to make a big fanfare thing about the Productivity Cocktail, which is now on Apple. But a lot of people have asked, like, hey, Winston, how do I become more personally productive? And I said, why don't I just share directly what that is? So, Jay, again, wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. And for those of you who are out there, look at yourself in the mirror. Keep painting that masterpiece, which is you.